Now, let me give you background for numbers very quickly, and then I'll make my case why this book and this chapter is relevant to us. The Hebrew name of the book is In the Wilderness. Actually, it's probably more helpful, at least initially, to draw you into the book, right? When you open a book and it's called Numbers, some of us are not as thrilled. And when you read the first chapter and it's literally a list of numbers and names, it's not as exciting. But if you look at the book as as telling us of Israel's experience in the wilderness, well, we're starting to relate just a little bit to the book. The book describes the time between Israel's exodus out of Egypt and their entrance into the land God promised them. You remember that God rescued his people out of Egypt. There were slaves there. God took them out miraculously, and they left. And then where were they going? They were going to the land that God had prepared for them. And so Numbers in the Wilderness is the book that describes that, that time when they're traveling. They're out of Egypt, but they're not in Canaan yet. You can think of the book of Numbers as a book about two generations. Today's passage contains the census of the first generation, the one that came out of Egypt under Moses' leadership. And then if you read on in chapter 26, you will find another census. Exciting, right? Another census, another list of names and numbers. That's the census of the second generation. Now you see, the first generation actually never made it into the land. They sent out the spies. You remember the story of the 12 spies. The first generation sent them out. They went into the land of Canaan. They looked around. They came back, and 10 of them said, we're not going there. It's too scary. There are giants there. We're never going to survive. And so they decided not to go. And only two of those spies, the two faithful spies, Caleb and Joshua, actually went into the land with the second generation because God kept this first generation in the wilderness for 40 years until they died out so that the next generation could inherit the land that God promised to them. Now, here's where this book can help us today. Wilderness in Scripture is a major theme. You can't read the Bible and not notice that many things happen in the wilderness. Many people go into the wilderness. And this idea of the wilderness is used as a metaphor for human experience. It's not just randomly here because some people went into the wilderness. No, there's a theme, there's a metaphor to help us understand what our lives are like. Now think about the wilderness. And some of us who have been affected by the recent storm and are still waiting for the power to come on are thinking about the wilderness. And we're thinking about how difficult it is to live without some of these modern conveniences we have taken for granted. And we're waiting to see if my experiment, if you keep the fridge shut and keep the cold in, right? (laughs) The question is, how long is it going to work for? We'll find out. But the wilderness is a metaphor for the human Experience. It's not hard to draw parallels about with our lives and being in the wilderness. Wilderness is a place of danger and vulnerability. You are dependent on all sorts of things completely out of your control, and literally everything can kill you. It is a place of hunger and thirst. You don't have refrigeration. You can't keep stuff for very long, so you are depending day by day on food and water. 
It is often a lonely place, place of alienation, place of loneliness. It's a place of fear and doubt. It's a place of hardship and pain and suffering. Does not our life resemble being in the wilderness? Is that not a good metaphor to compare our lives with? Have you not felt alienated, frustrated, lost, exhausted? And God gives us a whole book in his Bible to help us understand that experience. Something that is so real to us, something that is so relevant to us, God says, I'm going to give you a whole book, this book we call In the Wilderness, this book of Numbers, to tell you what it's like to be a human being in this world. But the Bible doesn't just describe our experience and gives us this great metaphor to relate to. It also teaches us how to survive the wilderness. Maybe even how to thrive in the wilderness. Now, I'm going to take you to the New Testament for just a couple of minutes, okay? 1 Corinthians 10, and you can turn there with me if you'd like. This is the Apostle Paul's commentary on the book of Numbers. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, familiar with the Scriptures, draws parallels with the book of Numbers to encourage the people he is writing to. And Paul, referring to the book of Numbers, says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Paul is addressing Christians like us and says, Here's the book of Numbers, and it can really help you, it can really help me, it can really help us today as we deal with temptation, as we deal with idolatry, as we deal with doubt, as we deal with any part of our human experience. And Paul says that our own wanderings in the wilderness can be transformed if we look at them through the lens of the book of Numbers. Now he's applying the book. He's taking the book of Numbers and he's saying if we apply it, if we look at our experience through it, through what it teaches us, our experience of the wilderness can be changed. It can be transformed. The question is how? Now look at 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 4. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul is saying, look at your human experience full of fear and doubt and frustration and alienation and idolatry and temptation and pain. Look at that through the book of Numbers and see that in that wilderness that you are in right now, there is also someone else. There's a rock that's following you, just like the rock followed Israel in Numbers. There's somebody who is there with you, and that person is Jesus Christ. Now, this is where Numbers becomes very relevant to us. We're all in the wilderness. We can all relate to their experiences. But it also reveals to us that our experiences can be transformed if we notice that Christ is there with us. The presence of Jesus transforms our experience of the wilderness. It transforms our human 
experience. While Christians still experience doubt and fear and temptation and alienation and frustration and hunger and thirst, vulnerability, suffering, and even death, just as all human beings do, we are not going through it alone. Jesus himself is with us in the wilderness. Jesus, God who became human, who knows our life because he himself went into the wilderness figuratively by becoming human, but literally spent time in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy. Jesus, who died in a desolate place outside the city called Golgotha, the place of a skull, that Jesus is with us in the wilderness. The Jesus who rose again in a garden came out of the wilderness, the first one, the pioneer, the forerunner, who is coming again to lead us into the promised land of God's restored creation, the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus will bring us there. That Jesus is with us in our own wilderness today. That's why you read the book of Numbers, because you see how Jesus transforms our experience of the wilderness. So today we're looking at just one portion of Numbers, but I hope that this maybe intrigues you enough. Maybe it gives you enough of a motivation to pursue study in the book of Numbers, but we're only going to look at one chapter, the first chapter that I so masterfully read for you. And we're going to look at that first chapter, which gives us the first census. This is the first generation being mustered for war to go into the land to which they actually never do except for Joshua and Caleb. So we look today, and our question is, how does Jesus transform our wilderness based on this census? So number one, with Christ, our wilderness becomes a place in between. With Christ, our wilderness is transformed into a place in between. Now look at verse 1. The census is taken after the people were rescued out of slavery in Egypt, and yet before they entered Canaan. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So right after they have come out, they've been wondering, they've received the law, they've been in in this wilderness, they're ready to go into somewhere else, God speaks. It's a place in between. They left Egypt, but they haven't arrived in Canaan yet. And for Israel, the wilderness is a temporary state. It may have lasted longer than they anticipated, but it did end with their conquest and possession of the land. It was a place in between. For a Christian, our current often frustrating experience of living in the world, living in the flesh, living in the presence and power of sin, living in conflict with all sorts of spiritual powers, this experience is an experience in between. If you're a Christian, you have been rescued by Jesus. That happened already. That's your Egypt. Something happened. God got you. God brought you out of somewhere. When Jesus died and rose in your place, you have been saved. Now, you used to be a slave to sin, 
and Jesus freed you from that slavery. He took you out. You were an enemy of God, and Jesus made you part of God's family. That already happened if you know Jesus. However, your salvation has not been consummated yet. It's not been completely finished. Is it finished in the sense that you are saved? Yes. There's security and stability and assurance in that. But has it all played out? No. It has not all played out yet. All sin has not been eliminated yet, as we all know very well, fighting sin ourselves. All God's enemies have not been defeated yet. The world has not been restored yet. We have been given our inheritance by grace, but we have not come into possession of all our inheritance yet. So we live in between. I'm sure you have heard uh, the concept of already not yet. Theologians like to, to phrase it that way, that we live in that already not yet reality. Some things have already happened, but some things have not yet happened, and yet we live at, at once possessing something that is promised to us and yet anticipating what is to come. Christ has already died, risen, and ascended, but He has not yet returned. And this is our experience of the wilderness with Christ. Now what it means is, is that we are not wandering randomly and aimlessly in the wilderness of life. There is a movement. There is purpose. There is future. Karl Barth said that Christ does not rest at place. Christ is always on the move, moving human history forward, completing His and fulfilling His promises. We are a part of that movement. If you're a Christian and if you are in the wilderness with Jesus, you are on the move. You have left Egypt and you are moving towards Canaan, the land of promise. This is not aimless wandering. The German philosopher Martin Heidegger there's never uh, a bad time to introduce a German existentialist philosopher on a Sunday morning like this, but I, I'll do my best. The German philosopher Martin Heidegger described the human condition as Gewurfenheit. Forgive my German. Gewurfenheit. All that means is that it's a state of thrownness. This is the best we can translate it. The state of thrownness. We've been thrown into this world. Now, he's an existentialist philosopher, and he basically thinks there is no meaning in this life unless you make meaning out of it. But this idea that most of us find ourselves in circumstances that we had nothing to do with, decisions we had not made, choices we had not made, and yet here we are. It's that state of being sort of here, not knowing why, and being contingent on things over which you have no power. According to Heidegger, each person is arbitrarily thrown into circumstances, into a certain place, into a certain time. And we don't choose it, and yet it shapes us. I didn't pick to be born at a certain time, into a certain family, in a certain country, and yet this is who I am. It's, it's undoubtedly, it's shaped me. And this disconnect, this dissonance that most human beings feel acutely, it, it produces this sense of alienation and, and frustration and, and sense that I, I'm not really sure why I'm here and I don't know what I'm doing. Now, before I came to Christ, I had that strong sense 
of Gewerfenheit. I didn't put it in those words, of course, but, but I felt that my life was purposeless. And without Christ, I think this feeling is an honest assessment of the human condition, and I think it's warranted by our experience. I just couldn't find anything worth committing my life to. I looked around, and I just couldn't find anything that was solid enough for me to rest my life on. There was nothing that I found that was so permanent that I could say, I can build on that, or I can pursue that. If I could only just get there, then my life would be of some value, of some worth. I couldn't find it. And then I found Jesus, or rather Jesus found me. In my experience in the wilderness, like that of many, many Christians, was changed by Jesus. When I met him, I realized that I was not, in fact, thrown into this world, but I was created. I was preserved, and I was guided by God. This God is not a distant deity looking at the randomness and pointlessness of the human experience and sort of chuckling to himself. That's not who God is. There's nothing random about him. There's nothing purposeless about him. Instead, in Christ, God reveals himself as our father. As our father. Well, good fathers don't throw their children into strange circumstances. They place them very carefully where they need to be at that time for the amount of time they need to be there. Nothing in our lives, if they are looked at through Christ, is random or pointless. Every step in the wilderness is governed very carefully by the hand of our loving Father. Not thrown into the wilderness, I am guided through it. This is an incredible transformation of one person's experience in the wilderness, and I'm sure many of you who are Christians can testify to that. Especially if you came to Christ later in life, where, when you had enough time to consciously evaluate your condition and realize there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of meaning in this world. The patterns don't seem to hold, and I'm not really sure why I should remain living. And then you meet Jesus. And Jesus in the wilderness transforms everything. And you see how the world is completely different from what you imagined it to be. And the forces that you thought were random turns out to be forces under the control of God who is providentially governing everything for your benefit and His glory. Now, the inherent challenge of the book of Numbers is to see our wilderness, our experience, both in this sort of dramatic, you know, big-picture philosophical sense, but also in the day-to-day -day reality of doing things and being bored and looking for meaning, that kind of way. The challenge is to see that wilderness as a place in between. We've left something, but we haven't arrived yet. That's going to cause some frustration. That frustration is legitimate. That's going to cause a sense of alienation at times. That is legitimate because we haven't come to where we need to be. And yet at the same time, there is a direction and movement and purpose and an aim and a future and a hope that is evident if Jesus is with you in your 
wilderness. Now, the challenge of numbers is, is put before us in terms of these two generations. Now, we read about the census of the first generation. Now, they did not see their wilderness as a place in between. They did not recognize Jesus. Most of them didn't recognize Jesus as there with them in the wilderness making meaning of their suffering. The first generation refused to do that. They wanted to return to Egypt. I mean, what an absurd idea to return to Egypt out of which they were rescued by God in a miraculous way to Egypt where their children were killed when they were forced to work with nothing. And yet they would rather go back then see wilderness as a place in between, as a place on the way somewhere else. So fearful they were about what was to come. But the second generation pressed on toward their inheritance in the land. They believed that they were not going to stay in the wilderness. They believed that this was not a permanent situation. They believed that the only way to get out of the wilderness is not to go back to Egypt, but actually to move forward and to take possession of Canaan. They were going to lay hold of their inheritance in the land of promise because they were in a place that was in between. It was not a permanent thing. The wilderness was just a temporary experience on the way to what God promised them. Now here's the question from the book of Numbers. Which generation do you belong to? Which census are you a part of? Chapter 1 or chapter 26? Are you part of the first generation who was mustered to war and yet never went? Or are you part of the second generation who took hold of their inheritance in the land? Now the difference is the determining factor, which generation and which census you belong to, is based on your trust in God's promises. It really is that simple. The first generation did not trust God's words, and the second did. Imperfectly, yes. With many failings, yes. With many doubts, with all sorts of weird stuff, read the book of Numbers, but They trusted, and they went. They went. And they saw God defeat their enemies and give them the land that he had promised to them. So with Christ, with Christ, that's number two, the wilderness becomes a place of believing. It's a place of believing. Notice that our chapter begins and ends with God's word. In verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses and told him to take a census of the people, and Moses does that. And then in verse 54, we read that the people did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord speaks, and the people respond. That's the whole game. Do you believe God's promises? The wilderness is a place where you learn that where you learn to believe Him, where you learn to trust Him, where you learn whether you trust Him or not. You can only learn that in the wilderness. God shows Himself faithful in the wilderness. 
and He encourages you with every promise kept. He encourages you to trust Him more. This is why in the wilderness is not static. There's a movement. We are walking. We're moving. And with every step, we're learning to trust God more because we see Him actually keep His promises. Now look at this census. I know how exciting that sounds. Look at the census, okay? In chapter 1, every tribe is given a numerical value, right? So there's every tribe has a certain number of men ready to fight. If you're 20 years or older, by the way, can't retire here. It's, it's just 20 and up. So 66, 75, 95, it's, you're, you're counted in that army. But every tribe has a certain number of warriors that are listed, that are registered. And then at the end, in verse 46, it tells us that there were 603,550 warriors in Israel. That's the total number. So over 600,000 of people willing and ready and, and prepared to fight, or so we think still in this chapter. Counting the Levites, who are not counted, that tribe is not counted because they're responsible for the tabernacle. They're not part of the army. They're going to take care of the temple, the tabernacle of God. So counting them, counting the women, counting anybody younger than 20, there must have been about 2 million people in that camp, in the wilderness, 2 million people. Now, is this not a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12? This census, the recording of numbers, the recording of names and tribes is in itself evidence that God keeps His promises. So the book of Numbers starts with assurance of God's faithfulness. And then the rest of it is people are working out whether they can trust God or not. But it starts with clear sign, evidence that God is the God who keeps his promises. Because he told Abraham, remember, I'll make a great nation out of you in, in chapter 12 of Genesis. And then another place he tells him, your, your offspring, your descendants will be like the sand of the sea. You won't be able to even count them. And here we have almost countless crowds, right? They've counted the warriors and they haven't counted everybody else. Over 600,000 people ready to go to war, probably over 2 million people altogether. One of the reasons for taking this census was to put God's faithfulness on display. The census says, look at God, keep His promises. Look at God doing what He told you He was going to do. Now, remember that there were only 70 people belonging to Jacob's family. Jacob also named Israel that started in Egypt. Only 70 people. That is not very many. And the Lord multiplied them there. In spite of the opposition from Pharaoh's, in spite of Pharaoh killing male children so they don't multiply as quickly, so they don't become too strong, in spite of all of that, they leave about 2 million people strong. God has been faithful. Of course, there are other promises that are kept here in the census. Judah, for example, has become a leading tribe. That's a fulfillment of the blessing that was given to the tribe of Judah. The Lord is dwelling with His people as evidenced by the tabernacle that is taken care of by the Levites. The Lord is there. That's a promise kept by God. Moses is leading His people. That's a promise kept to Moses. 
when God called Moses and told him, you will take my people out of, out of Egypt. You will lead them out of that slavery. And that's exactly what happened. So all of us walking in the wilderness with Christ, we should all say God is faithful. And we should all sing, all my life you have been faithful. Right? We should all sing that. All my life you have been so, so good with every breath that I am able. I will sing of the goodness of God because God is faithful. Because we see that on display in chapter 1 of Numbers as we see it throughout the book. And so what happens is as, as if we focus on the promises that have been kept, we can now expect that other promises will be kept as well. The first generation did not go to war because they did not trust God to keep His word and to fight for them and to give them the land, even though they saw God already in their midst fulfilling His promises. Already out of Egypt, already rescued already organized into a new nation, already having the law, already having the tabernacle, and yet they did not trust him to keep fulfilling his promises. You cannot enter the promised land if you don't trust God's promises. The land is promised to you. You have an inheritance that is promised to you in Christ, but you must trust Christ's word you must trust that he will keep his promises, all of them, sooner or later. Maybe some are taking longer than you anticipate, and yet he will keep all his promises. Because if, if God has been faithful, should we not trust him to remain faithful? Why all of a sudden God would change change his character, change his personality, and all of a sudden he would stop doing what he said he would do for his people. So one thing we should do in the wilderness is recognize God's past faithfulness. We need to look back and see what God has already done. It is good to verbalize praises to God for what he has done. It is good for us to reflect and say, I have seen God's provision here. I have seen his protection here. I prayed and God came through in this particular situation. And there's a record of this. There's a census we have taken of his faithfulness. Do you not see his guidance in your life? Do you not see his provision? Do you not see his protection? Any Christian that just stops to think and actually examines their life will see that God has been faithful. And he will not change. He will continue to be faithful and all his promises will come true for you. How does Jesus transform our wilderness into a place of believing? Well, Jesus himself is God's embodied faithfulness. If you read the New Testament, you see how many times Jesus himself, his person, what he's done, his life, his death and resurrection is used to show us that God is faithful. Paul says Jesus is the yes and amen of God. That's in, in Jesus, his promises are fulfilled. Ultimately, yes, ultimately, all of God's promises, absolutely all of his promises culminate in Jesus himself. 
and you have him in your wilderness. You have this Jesus. You have this word who became flesh, God's word, God's promise, who was embodied, who was placed into your life, who is there as the rock following you in your wilderness. And to know him is simply to trust God. To know Jesus is to rest in God's faithfulness. The question is, do you know him? Do you follow him? Do you trust his words? And finally, with Christ, our wilderness becomes a place of belonging. It's a place in between. It's a place of believing, and it's a place of belonging. A census, any census, places each person into a community. A census is taken to describe a community, to understand a community. Sometimes it's taken for the purposes of taxation, which happens in Scripture as well. Sometimes, like in this case, it's taken for the purposes of determining who is to serve in the military. But every person counted by Moses here was part of a family. They were part of a clan, part of a tribe, and ultimately part of Israel's army. Everybody who's in the wilderness belongs to somebody, belongs with a group of people, belongs with a large and then smaller communities within the large community. There's a clear commitment that is made by every person here to a community. And with Christ, we are not traveling, wandering, roaming around in the wilderness by ourselves. We are part of a people. We are part of a kingdom. We are part of an army. And we need to see ourselves in that, very clearly committed to that. We're part of a church. You know, we... We do membership here at Chatham. Why? Because there's a commitment involved in that. When you become part of a local church, you say, this is my clan. You know, this is my family. This is my tribe. I'm traveling with them. So when we lay out a camp, right, you know where you are. You know where to pitch your tent. This is what's happening with Israelites. And Jesus, by being present in the wilderness places us within the people of God, within the covenant people of God. And there's a commitment that every Christian needs to make by seeing themselves specifically as part of the church, specifically as part of a local church, specifically as part of a smaller community of people with whom you travel in the wilderness. Remember, when I was younger, I used to love the Beatles. And and there was a song, Revolution, which I really liked because I was a little revolutionary in my earlier days. So I loved the songs about changing the world and all that kind of stuff. But John Lennon sings in this song, you say you want a revolution. Well, you know we all want to change the world, to which I was saying, yeah, we do. You tell me that it's evolution. Well, you know we all want to change the world. And then he says this weird thing. But when you talk about destruction, don't you know you can count me out? And then he says what? Do you remember? And he says, in. So when we talk about destruction, don't you know you can count me out? In. <laughs> he leaves it open. Now, to the fans of the Beatles and to the fans of John Lennon, the question was, so are you for violent revolution or not? We don't know based on this song. He left it open. 
He made no commitment. We don't know that if there was a violent, violent revolution, would he have joined it or not? He says, you can count me out. In. That's how many Christians are, right? Well, if you're talking about the church, you can count me in. Out. <laughs> right? Oh, I'm here. Except when I'm not here, right? There's that, that, that sort of double commitment, lack of commitment. Yes, I love the church, but I'm not really involved. Maybe I'm involved sometimes, but you don't see any of that in Numbers 1. There's a census. Anybody 20 years or older is supposed to go to war. And you go with your clan, you go with your family, you go with your tribe. I am part of this. I am part of this church. I can't see myself, my spiritual life, my ministry, my mission without you. For me, this, this is it. This is my family. This is my clan. And I can't see sanctification, fight against sin, the mission of God in this world apart from this. Because the Bible doesn't. The Bible doesn't allow for Christians to be alone and to thrive in the wilderness alone. We belong to each other. Now, secondly, we belong to God. It's not just belonging to a community. There's a belonging to God. It is God who is counting and recording everybody in the camp. This is very significant. And also, you know, this is not the only list of names and numbers in Scripture, right? I mean, you've read enough of the Bible to know that these lists come up again and again. There are genealogies. There are lists of people according to tribes. There are people who are numbered. And then finally, of course, you know, there's the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, where every name redeemed by the Lamb is recorded. And there will be a time when that book will be opened. And everybody whose name is in it will receive their inheritance, will receive their eternal life. So in the wilderness with Christ, you belong in that book. In the wilderness with Christ, you belong to God, and God is actually recording your name in His census because He knows you. He knows everything about you, and He wants to know your children and your friends and how strong you are and where in the camp you live. It's in His record. Now, it's interesting that as you read this passage, you get to all the tribes, and by the way, Joseph's tribe is divided to make it into 12 tribes because Levites are excluded from the census. Levites, one of the 12 tribes, is actually excluded because they are a special tribe. They are supposed to take care of the presence of God in the camp. Because in the wilderness with Jesus, you belong to God, and God is with you there. And so they are going to make sure that the tabernacle is protected that is cared for, that people are serving there, that anybody can come and meet God there according to the rules and laws that God has given us. That it's not taken flippantly, that worship happens because we belong to God. The tabernacle is at the center of the camp. If you read Numbers further, you will see, and if you're careful, you will notice that, that the way the camp is laid out is... There's the tabernacle in the middle, the Levites all around it, protecting it and caring for it. That's where God is. This is where God reveals himself. And then from there, you have encampments of all the tribes, and they go in the cross-like pattern out of the tabernacle. 
So you have the cross laid out in the camp of Israel, and the tabernacle is right in the middle of it. That's what you get with Christ in your wilderness. You get God because you belong to him, because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Through him, in your wilderness, you belong to his people, and you belong to God himself. And God said that even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He's not just, <laughs> he's not just numbered people. He's not just numbered warriors. He's numbered your hairs. And I know for some of you, that's not hard to imagine, right? <laughs> but for many of us, this is a lot of work because God loves us and he loves every part of you and he has numbered you and everything about your life in his census. I'll end with this and it will go to the table. I'm going to address very briefly those who are struggling in your faith, which is a lot of us. Those who are wrestling and saying, well, I, I have so many questions about Christianity. I have so many experiences in the church. Maybe it will be better if I'm just not part of it at all. Maybe it's time for me to leave. I'm just going to say this with as much compassion and love as I have in my heart for you. You will still have the wilderness. If you leave Jesus and his church, you will still have the wilderness. None of those things, none of those things about the universal human experience will disappear. But now you won't have Christ and his church. And all those things are going to be much worse. And just like the people in John 6, when Jesus says things that they couldn't understand... <laughs> Jesus was talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and everybody left except for his disciples. And Jesus turns to Peter and the disciples, and he says, well, what are you going to do? You going to go too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? He says, we know who you are. You are the son of the living God, and you have the words of eternal life, the words that they couldn't understand, but they knew that he had them. And they knew that going into the wilderness by themselves would have been worse than staying with him in the wilderness. And knowing that he has the words of eternal life for them and that they will receive the inheritance promised to all God's people.